When I listen to people's plans for Memorial Day and Labor Day, including my own on many years, these occasions can sometimes seem like little more than three-day weekends marking the begin and end of the summer vacation season. But Labor Day is much more than a federal holiday on which many Americans don't have to labor. At its best, it's about celebrating the working class and protecting the rights of workers. Memorial Day is also much more than a federal holiday. It's meant to honor and remember all who have died while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. And on this Memorial Day weekend, I'd like to pause here at the beginning of this sermon to drop one more stone into the water in recognition that as we sit in the peace of this sanctuary and in the freedom to worship as we see fit, we remain in a time of war in this country, and many soldiers remain at risk. On this Memorial Day weekend, it's also significant to note that this past Thursday, President Obama delivered a long overdue speech on national security. In that long address, the section that stood out most to me was the following. I intend to engage Congress about the existing Authorization to Use Military Force, or AUMF, to determine how we can continue to fight terrorism without keeping America on perpetual wartime, on perpetual wartime footing. The AUMF is now nearly 12 years old. The Afghan war is coming to an end. Core al-Qaeda is a shell of its former self. Groups like al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula must be dealt with, but in the years to come, not every collection of thugs that label themselves al-Qaeda will pose a credible threat to the United States. And unless we discipline our thinking, our definitions, and our actions, we may be drawn into more wars that we don't need to fight or continue to grant presidents unbound powers more suited for traditional armed conflicts between nation-states. So I look forward to engaging Congress and the American people in efforts to refine and ultimately repeal the AUMF's mandate, though hopefully that will happen quicker than he has closed Guantanamo Bay. Obama continued, I will not sign laws designed to expand this mandate further. Our systematic effort to dismantle terrorist organizations must continue, but this war, like all wars, must end. That's what history advises. It's what our democracy demands. I can only hope, as with many of President Obama's speeches, that his inspiring rhetoric becomes soon backed up with concrete action. And a timely presidential speech on national defense is one way of commemorating Memorial Day and all those who have died in the struggle to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, and to secure the blessings of liberty that are promised in the preamble of our Constitution. But on this Memorial Day weekend, I would also like to invite us to consider how we as a congregation commemorate Memorial Day. To do so, I'd like to share with you the practices of two other Unitarian Universalist congregations. My colleague, the Reverend Kathleen McTeague, served as the senior minister of the Unitarian Society of New Haven for 21 years, before last year becoming director of the new UU College for Social Justice. McTeague, in her 2011 book, Shine and Shadow, wrote the following about the practice of that UU congregation in Connecticut that she served for more than two decades. In church on Sunday mornings, we read aloud the names of American soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan each week. 
Alone in my study the night before, I speak each name out loud, and then I wonder about their stories. I imagine these stories as the babies they once were, held in someone's arms at a baptism or a naming ceremony, the proud relatives gathered around as the name was formally bestowed, and everyone beamed as the baby cooed or wailed and fidgeted. There was so much gladness and pride in each moment of naming, and not once did anyone imagine that the road their baby walked would end 18 or 20 years later in a mix of blood and dust halfway around the world. As a witness for peace on Memorial Day, a cairn of stones was built at a busy downtown intersection in Hartford, each stone bearing the name of a fallen American soldier, or one of the tens of thousands of Iraqi or Afghani civilians who have died in these wars. But how do you choose one name among thousands to symbolize so much carnage and so much loss? For myself, I brought three stones to the cairn, one for each of my own three children. Each stone bore the name of a child who had died on the birthday of one of mine. And as I placed the stones, I wondered about their names. Always there is a story. Now, from time to time, I hear of congregations with similar practices, and I'll confess that my initial reaction is a a mix of heaviness and pain, of inspiration as well as challenge. I can't help thinking, that's a lot to hold each week, all those names and all those stories. We come to this sanctuary, this place of unity and peace each week for many different reasons, for comfort and for challenge for peace and for perspective on our lives, for insight and for inspiration to make it one more week. We also come to confront the problems of the world and to combine our efforts in making this world a better place for all people. And what does it mean that every day for more than a decade, soldiers and civilians from this country have been in faraway lands that have been, and have been deeply affected by war every day? Yet weeks sometimes go by where none of that is acknowledged explicitly here in our public worship. At the same time, I suspect that this and other socially progressive congregations wrestle publicly with the, with the ethical problems of war and peace much more frequently than many traditional religious communities. But my sense is still that there are extremely few congregations who consistently read aloud the names of American soldiers killed in Afghanistan and Iraq. Each Sunday morning. If we were to adopt a practice like that, how might it affect who we are individually and who we are becoming as a congregation? Now, of course, there are many ways to engage and to hold and to try to transform the pain of the world. So I'm not insisting that a regular roll call has to be our practice. We may have to discern what, what that is or what that might look like for us. But I, do want to, I did want to offer it to you as one congregation's attempt to shape and to focus its mission. To offer a related example even closer to home, this morning, at this very moment, uh, about an hour away, the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore here in Maryland is at this very moment in the middle of its third annual Memorial Day service in which all those in attendance are invited to take turns reading aloud the names of all Maryland and Delaware servicemen and servicewomen who have died in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. The list grows longer each year. The organizer behind this ritual writes, This service grows out of my unease that Memorial Day commemorations often obscure the reality of death. 
and the responsibility that we have as citizens to think carefully about putting the lives of our fellow Americans at risk. We use evasive language such as the fallen, and we too rarely ask why. As with the weekly roll call practiced by our New Haven congregation, this annual memorial list of names read in Baltimore would be meaningful and moving here, but we need to name also that it would be challenging and heavy. And although I've never attended a service in either of these two congregations, it is also significant to note that, at least to my knowledge, neither of their weekly practices involves keeping regular track of all the civilian casualties that result from U.S. military intervention, what is sometimes called collateral damage. The U.S. policy toward keeping track of enemy and civilian casualties of war was perhaps most succinctly and infamously addressed in 2002 by General Tommy R. Franks, who said curtly to the press, you know that we don't do body counts. Around that time, a British military spokesman echoed these same sentiments. We don't do head counts, and we certainly don't publicize them if we do. I want to offer one more quote along these lines. Captain Frank Thorpe of the Navy, who is the Central Command's chief spokesman, has said, ultimately the numbers are not knowable, and besides, that number may not be an indication of anything. Now, from the perspective of Unitarian Universalism, speaking at least for myself, I cannot be satisfied with those responses. Our first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And in my reading, every person means just that, every person, friend and enemy, soldier and civilian. And that's not to say that there aren't consequences to our actions, but transparency about casualties seems essential to me in raising awareness about the consequences of our nation's actions in a government that is supposed to be of the people and by the people and for the people and an army that is supported by our tax dollars. As one theologian has said, by becoming a congregation that does body counts, the hope is to become a congregation in which all bodies count. More recently, the U.S. government has been disclosing more statistics about all casualties, but many media sources estimate that their numbers skew low in every case. And although Memorial Day is principally about remembering U.S. soldiers who have died while serving, remembering all casualties at some point, whether on Memorial Day or at another time, seems vitally important. Along these lines, a, 20, a 2001 study on civilians in war by the International Committee on the Red Cross showed a shift in a stark statistic. In World War I, nine soldiers were killed for every civilian. Nine soldiers were killed for every civilian. In today's wars, ten civilians die for every soldier. And that's in 2001. Ten civilians die for every soldier. Related to this statistic about the changing ratio of soldier-to-civilian casualties, there's been an accompanying change in the percentage of the U.S. population involved in war. The average age of World War II soldiers was 29, and about 12% of Americans served. In Vietnam, it was 23, and about 9% of the population served. For the global war on terror, the average age of a soldier being deployed for the first time is 19, and less than 1% has served. I'm part of that 99% who have not served in our nation's armed services. And as, I, and as I look back at my family's history, I can see the shrinking statistics of military service carved into my own 
family tree. Perhaps some of you looking back can see that too. On my mother's side, my uncle served in the Marines, and during my childhood, I vividly remember visiting him on army bases around the world. My aunt and cousins, not only were they stationed in California, which of course meant we got to visit Disneyland in Anaheim, but also they were stationed in Oslo, Norway, and which meant we got to visit the original Legoland theme park in Billund, Denmark, which opened back in 68. This is how my childhood mind worked. My father served in the army during the Korean War, but only stateside, and my maternal grandfather was in the Navy. My Uncle Wilbur was killed in action during World War II. But in contrast to these names from previous generations within my own family, I know only a few people inside or outside my family who have been uh, or are stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan in these years of perpetual war that have followed the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Now, I knew a few people in college who were in ROTC and then served overseas, and my seminary roommate is a chaplain in the 176th Medical Brigade of the U.S. Army Reserve. And from the seven years I spent in Louisiana as an associate pastor, at least three members of the young adult group that I started there, we called it for people 18 to 30-ish, about three of the people that uh, were part of that group uh, have enlisted in the Air Force. And the only reason I find those numbers troubling is because there's a strong sense in which the decision of each of those young people that they made to enlist, they were motivated by economics, what some critics have called the poverty draft. As one theologian has said, if our society provided a living wage in any job, affordable housing, free universal health care, and high-quality education through college for all citizens, it's not clear how many young people would still volunteer for military service. And if that were the case, it would also likely be the case that the struggle of combat veterans to receive adequate treatments and then be restored to civilian life would be greatly eased through those societal supports. Now, to be clear, my intention with that last quote is not to be anti-military. I'm a pragmatist, not a pacifist, although that's probably in detail a subject for another sermon. I have great respect for the many people who freely choose to join the military due to no coercion because of their economics, who join the military for a host of different reasons, including many people in this congregation at various points in their lives and for various different reasons. And I'm grateful to all those who have risked or sacrificed their lives to protect the freedoms we enjoy, including the freedom of this pulpit, the freedom of the pew, for us to say and do as we believe outside of any imposed orthodoxy to toe the party line or support a state religion. At the same time, as I explored in a sermon back in February, in addition to our training and funding our armed forces for when we need them, we also desperately need to train and fund citizens to be equally as committed and equally as well-trained in nonviolent activism along the lines of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. as U.S. soldiers are committed and trained in the techniques of modern warfare. We need as a nation to see that risking death and even dying in nonviolent activism and working for the cause of social justice is equally as courageous and equally vital as the willingness to risk death in war. Indeed, there are many times when nonviolent activism could provide an alternative to war and not sow the seeds of future wars as so many of our wars do. I should also clarify that although I titled this sermon The Right of Conscience and the Crystallization of Conscience, through the sermon writing process I realized I had more to say about Memorial Day than I originally projected. So I suspect another sermon is forthcoming 
on conscience in military service. But for anyone who came this morning specifically to hear about the advertised topic, let me say briefly that the sermon title, The Right of Conscience, refers to our fifth UU principle, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. The second part of the sermon title, The Crystallization of Conscience, refers to the phrase that the military itself uses for the process by which active duty soldiers come to be conscientious objectors. They are said to undergo, the military says, a crystallization of conscience. Now, I have a long-term interest in the ethics of conscientious objector status, and my interest is only heightened since becoming a Unitarian Universalist. I think it is vitally important for us to publicly wrestle with the tension between our tradition's commitment to individual conscience and to democracy, in, content, in contrast to the military's hierarchy and the current demand that CO status can only be granted to those who oppose all wars in any form. In response, a growing number of people are calling for CO status to be expanded to allow for those who are conscientious objectors to particular wars, not just to all wars. And I do plan to preach another sermon soon that explores these dynamics around conscience more fully. In the meantime, if you're interested, I encourage you to explore the website of the Truth Commission on Conscience in War, which launched back in 2010 with a public hearing at the historic Riverside Church in New York City, with the stated goal to honor and protect the freedom of conscience for our nation's service members. I'll link that as a footnote to the sermon. We need to give our soldiers, when necessary, the freedom to follow their conscience in the same way that boy did in the story that Laura told earlier. For now, as the sermon draws to a close, let me leave you with one final thought. I said earlier that when we, aren't, when we aren't careful, Memorial Day either becomes just another holiday or it becomes drenched in shallow platitudes that don't do honor to the reality of war. So I leave you with this quote which challenges all of us, whatever our situation in life, to follow our conscience, to have the tenacity to do what we know to be right within our deepest selves, no matter what even authority figures are telling us to do if those two things diverge. The quote goes like this. Love, when not accompanied by courage and wisdom, is simply sentimentality, as with the ordinary member of most congregations. Courage, when not accompanied by love and wisdom, is foolhardiness, as with the ordinary soldier. And wisdom, without love and courage, is cowardice, as with the ordinary intellectual. But the one with love, courage, and wisdom is the one in a million who is extraordinary, the one who moves the world. So on this Memorial Day weekend, when we honor those who have died in military service, may the memory of their lives inspire us to choose love, to choose courage, and to choose wisdom, that together we might be extraordinary, that together we might move the world. May we remember, and may it be so.